Strother Purdy is the founder of Beloved Old Tree, the author of a fascinating blog, and the author of three books, which can all be found here in the link below. This is his second time on the show, and it is a distinct honor to welcome him back. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Strother Purdy. Uh, the horror of beginning. This yeah, meeting see. is being recorded. I see, there you go. <laughs> it's telling me, warning, Russian hackers. No, that's something else. Got yeah. it there. <clears throat> All right, what do you want? What time is it in Chicago right now? It's eight in the morning. That'll decide what I want, I think. <laughs> I can't it's demand too much too early. You said what? Oh, sorry? I said I can't demand too much too early. No, no. Well, you can try. Um, last time we spoke, you were just starting to write a book, I think? Yes. And you were bouncing around some ideas. I think you had written an outline. <clears throat> um, I think that outline got leaked to me through, through Way of Your Daughter. Oh. Um, but that's where we left off. I'm sure you've made some progress, although <laughs> it is hard to assume. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I hope I have in a year. I mean, there's there's lethargy and then there's lethargy. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I sent it off to the publisher on um, Wednesday, I think on Wednesday. So just a few days ago. So now I'm in this awful waiting period between mm. submission of manuscripts and whether the publisher decides to uh, use the escape clause, which is, I cannot publish this manuscript, I reject it. What, what would be the basis of that rejection? Um, Could be any uh, number of things. On my part, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it, publishers can have any, hundreds, any hundred reasons to reject a manuscript. Uh, and I don't think it's likely because... Richard's a good fella, and the book is close enough to its outline that I don't think there are any surprises. Hmm. So he was aiming to publish what I proposed earlier, uh, and now um, he has it in his hands. But this is all just personal worry. It's submitted. It's off to him. We'll see what happens. Whether he'll turn it into a children's book or not, that's up to him. Yeah. Well, it could be a wider audience. Um... I've never worked with a publisher before, nor have I really spoken to anybody explicitly about working with a publisher before. Hat, did you work with this publisher on your on an earlier book? Yes. How do you even how do you even form a relationship with a publisher? I imagine that seems like that seems like a filter in and of itself. <laughs> it's it, it's fascinating how the industry has changed. It um, it used to be a long time ago that the job of a publisher was to go out and find, or at least mm. the editors that worked for a publisher, to go out and find great voices, experts in a field, and then get them to create a book. Now, all that process seems to begin with the marketing department. What does the market need? Mm. Um, we'll design a book uh, to meet that need, and then we have to find an author for it. Uh, so interesting with, uh, uh, with Lyndon, that's how I was found to write the door book. He simply gave me a call, said, Strother, I've got this door book idea. Do you want to write it? 
And I said, sure, I make Mm. doors. I love doors. Um, If I had sent him a proposal for a door book, it probably would have been roundly ignored because it wasn't the need doesn't come from the authors so much anymore. The need comes from the marketing department. Fascinating. Um, Now, that said, my (laughs) book about hands and mind, uh, that came from me to him. I sent him off that proposal and said, Richard, this is a really good book. You really should should publish this. And he said, yeah. How much of that is okay? So once you have a once you have a relationship, once you've delivered on the door thing, and you know that came from marketing, but you delivered on it. Now you have a relationship with him, and he can. Does he at that point look back at like the marketing data? I'm not even sure what that would look like. But does <laughs> does he try to get a sense of whether or not that book's going to land, or or oh, did he I'm, just trusts you at that point? Uh, publishers have to stay in business and. Sure. I don't know how profitable they used to be, uh, but I know that margins are tight these days. They absolutely don't want to put a book out there on a whim. They absolutely want to have a strong sense uh, that they'll do well. Uh, When I worked at the Taunton Press, uh, we would send the list of books that we were working on from the editorial department to the marketing department. And the marketing department would largely try to sell those ideas and get pre-orders even before the book was written. Hmm. And then that information would come back to the editorial department and sometimes shape, you know, look, they're really looking for a, but Taunton was a bit of an exception uh, in the publishing world in that it still tried to seek out the expert and get them to write the book. Um, But still there was very much a, a greased slide toward profitability. Uh, Everybody from the marketing to the editor, they're all talking to each other and figuring out what would do well and what was needed. Um, I made a couple of those calls myself as an editor, uh, Mm. calling uh, really good finishers and saying, how about a finishing book from you? We think we could sell it. (laughs) (laughs) And the responses I would get are, there are already seven good finishing books on the market. I don't need to write one. And then I'd say, well, Taunton Press doesn't have one. It's, this is an exercise in, in putting bread on our table. Um, but no, that's a little on the cynical side. It was, it was more, uh, more honest. But yes, the, it's, it's very much a business run like any other. They, they've got to make their, their dime. So you figure out, you, you absolutely look at numbers. I'm sure, I'm sure Linden Press is doing that. <laughs> This this feels twenty years behind the curve, so I'm sure they're into this. <clears throat> What's your sense of of how they're using the internet to cheaply publish things, maybe initially, to gauge interest, or is that? Oh, I don't know. Um, Linden, I think, is a, a little bit more of a traditional press. It's it's based in in crafts, so they publish all sorts of how to books. Uh, but a, a full range. I think uh, they're they're a smart bunch, so they see opportunities elsewhere and what they can do. <clears throat> Other presses are very much oriented around um, uh, the social media feedback world. Uh, for several of them, when I tried fishing book ideas around 
a few years ago, their first question was, what is your social media following? How many people do you already have sure. who will buy your book if it comes mm. out that you can yeah. market directly to? How many customers are you bringing to us? Mm. Is their, their marketing department question. So, you know, if, if you're a politician, a famous politician, of course, you bring a, a big Twitter following and they love publishing politician books because they're pretty much guaranteed to sell to the to the faithful of that writer. Uh, but little old me with, I think, seven people who look at my Instagram account um, and uh, uh, maybe three that read my blog kind of thing, uh, they, <clears throat> that, that internet presence. And it, it, happily, Lyndon never asked me about that. It was never mm. part of, I don't think that's, that's part of the social media isn't part of their, their strategy. So perhaps they're unique or special or perhaps they're just... Um, uh, a little more retrograde. You know, we're we're older folk. I think uh, the publisher there and his son are are my age, which is to say, ancient, compared to uh, you young kids who have sure. got the publishing figured out through I don't yeah. know through TikTok or their books coming out through TikTok. I wouldn't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I would not know. But yeah, um, how information, this is a, this is a very important part for your, of uh, the development of your generation. What you substitute what's been lost is to me, a, a fa both a fascinating and an important question. Publishers used to be the, uh, a vetting entity. Editors used to, shall we say, separate the goats from the sheep they felt something of a responsibility to publish good material. This was part of their job of seeking out the right author for it. And yes, it's very exclusive, uh, ex exclusive or exclusionary. Um, they would absolutely go for credentials, uh, which are still very important. Um, who should write the, uh, the book on evolution? Well, the evolution specialists from Harvard or from Yale, hmm. those are the people that you would look for. Um, and if you were just some fellow who had ideas about evolution, you couldn't get published from a mainline press. They would just say, no, you're not the right person for it. In the, today, with uh, Amazon and the, the long tail publishing, anybody and everybody can put out a book on evolution. And the book's success is based on its marketing. Uh, it's who buys it. And then it becomes the number one Amazon bestseller in that. Uh, depending on its ratings or reviews. Oh, I love the section about fish turning into monkeys. Um, it was so cute. You know, whatever the, the, uh, um, the comments are drive the sales. And so then it becomes the authority, but it hasn't been vetted by anyone uh, except the market, so to speak. So you end up with a, a market that's driven by people buying it who don't know anything about evolution. They buy simply the book that other people who don't know anything about evolution have liked for perhaps the right reasons, perhaps the wrong reasons. Uh, what are the right reasons? We don't really know if it's to only publish books that are the absolute gospel of the current theory of evolution, then no, we, 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 get, uh, um, we get books that uh, are popular for other reasons. I'm sort of wandering off on a completely crazy tangent. I don't know of any bad evolution books out there. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure if you Google bad evolution books, you'll 
find ones that don't come from authorities who do. So what, how, and it, uh, sorry, um, maybe you can edit out some of this. Not at all. In the how-to world, I, I write books and have published articles on how to do something well. Am I the authority on it? Absolutely not. There are many ways to make a door. But I have put into my book good ways to make a door. Um, they are repeatable. <laughs> they will be successful. And when I don't know something, I've said I don't know. If you go onto YouTube, you will find 50 really bad ideas for making doors, sure. as well as 50 really good ideas on making doors. And there's no way to tell them apart if you don't know. Uh, so the, that old saying, you, you get what you pay for, uh, YouTube doesn't have a vetting process to direct new woodworkers to the really good videos on how to really do this well. Mm. And how, you know, we're, we're in the era of fake news, we're in the era of, um, we're, we're not quite sure who to believe. Uh, we don't have that system that we used to have in place uh, to, you know, what goes on to what Walter Cronkite says on the news of the night is, is pretty very verifiable. Uh, we all trust what he has to say. Uh, and so your generation has got to figure out with this endless and amazing access for anybody and everybody to have a voice. Um, how do you tell the good from the bad information? I think you raised a couple viable titles for your next door book. <laughs> I, I think, I think, at the top of the list for me was there are many ways to make a door. <laughs> right. This would be doors too, door making too. There are many ways. To make a door. Yeah. Or it's with cardboard. Yeah. I'm thinking about fast. like playing with that. Like there are many ways to skin a cat. There are many ways to skin a door. There are many ways to make a cat. <laughs> right. But why should you believe me? Well, this might be, a little too obvious to, to even really sit on for a little bit, but I'm, I'm interested in that. Like, all right, there's no vetting now. There's everybody has a voice, including me. I have a microphone in front of me right now. Right. For example. Who are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, the alternative is sort of this vetting process that uses marketing to see what the crowd is interested in. So you have this, like you're subject to the crowd, I think on either end. Yes. Yes, it's true. Though, it, with a, an interesting twist, say if the, the old the old style publishers were all considered something of a snooty crowd, um, and they did publish an awful lot of books that they believed in that didn't sell, that went off and and you know fell as they said stillborn from the press. Uh, one of those books was Moby Dick. Mm. Um, Melville had written two. Uh, it was the 1850s were called the feminine 50s because the, the, the biggest market, the, the biggest writers of that era were, were women. And I really don't remember. I don't. Those books are lost to history. You have to be an historian um, or a literary uh, or an academic to 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 know who those people are, the, who wrote those books. But they were fabulously popular. Melville wrote these two books, Type B and Umu that were fabulous, fabulously popular. Um, they were, you know, <clears throat> swashbuckling tales of 
living with cannibals in the South Sea, and they sold quite well. And then he sat down and wrote Moby Dick, and the publishers read this and said, my God, this thing is heavy. We can't sell this. But they decided, yes, it was of literary merit. We're not going to make money on it. We're going to publish it. And they did. And it did fall like a rock from the press. Hmm. Nobody bought the damn thing. Hmm. Um, and uh, it it languished. I think they he first published it in England, if I'm not mistaken. And Melville was sort of at despair that his he, he felt he really put his heart and soul into that book and it disappeared. And it wasn't until the 1920s that a Columbia professor paging <laughs> who knew about Melville just from the history books uh, apparently was at a um, a book sale and came across an old copy of this Moby Dick. Oh, yes, Melville, that adventure writer, wrote this. And he sat down and read it, decided it was pretty good, and became an advocate for it later. Hmm. Um, and in that regard, I, I think he could be a, an example of where the snootiness of the publishers did help literature. They published a book, the publishers published a book that was was not going to sell particularly well. Uh, but then again, if you look at the names of Nobel laureates, who has been held up uh, throughout the, the last century as the great writers of the world who deserve Nobel, I guarantee you're not gonna recognize 70% of the names. Um, there are a few Nobel laureates for literature that we do remember, that we do really still read, but a fair number of them have just fallen off the face of the earth because publishers who believed in them published them and yet their work wasn't really great. It didn't resonate through the times the way they say Shakespeare has. Mm. We still keep coming back to Shakespeare across every country in the world for that matter. I do blather on, don't I? I've called my book, my opus palaveris. <clears throat> and as someone said, you do tend to be discursive, Strother. So I don't mind if you edit me heavily. Uh, it's just the way it comes out, a bit like toothpaste from the tube. Yeah, I'm not a... I don't know if I have, first of all, the patience to edit. <laughs> Strictly speaking, at all. Yet oh, alone, God, you're yet alone poor... audio. Um, which book are you referring to? The Hands and the Mind book? or Because I know you wrote, yeah. a, you wrote a science fiction book as well, right? I did, and that was even worse palaver. Uh, in discursive uh, writing. Um, uh, yes, to both, to just my general style. Mm. Um, I think uh, uh, as a writer, my best, um, uh, what do you call it, format is the is the 3,000 word essay because finally it's over. Um, and uh, just in time kind of thing rather mm. than the, the 70,000 word book or the 150,000 word novel. Hmm. did you care at all with the passing recently of cormac mccarthy oh very much so blood meridian amazing book absolutely amazing book and heavily influenced by moby dick actually yes 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 yeah and you you can see it if you look if, if um yeah yeah that's curious you can, you absolutely can see Melville in, in McCarthy. I hadn't, I, I, I haven't studied or read about it. What's, what's been said about their connection? There is, <clears throat> I will do my best, but 
I would recommend anyone who's interested to there's a Yale public lecture on YouTube that I think it's a two part lecture series or something where she walks the professor walks through blood meridian but then ties it to these like two texts that she makes the argument heavily influenced uh the novel and i think it's moby dick and then i can't remember what the other source material is but it 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 was a little bit more obviously moby dick would be like a thematic connection if you know anything about blood meridian but this other source material was actually like about a group of scalp hunters so he's you know her argument is that both sort of informed his writing of that book and i uh, i remember maybe most saliently the connection that she draws between the judge and ahab being this sort of yes, like mono yes. yeah it, it was pretty neat so yeah i think it's maybe two hours in total but it's definitely worth it okay yes i just found it yeah you the mccarthy loved language uh in a way that and that's that's where I would say absolutely they're in the same realm, Melville and and McCarthy. But thematically, I hadn't really thought around it. Um, the uh, uh, God, his both of their prose uh, just to sort of fall into uh, the way in which Melville handles not just a sentence but a paragraph and then mm. several paragraphs together. The counterpane in um, in uh, uh, in in Moby Dick, just absolutely gorgeous, and and M- McCarthy has that same capacity to to paint a scene, create a scene, not paint. I'm using wrong words, and I haven't read Blood Meridian in I don't know 15 years. Hmm. Um, but those those descriptions of the of the babies hanging from the tree early on, they're the they stick with you the way that Melville does the squeezing of the sperm. These these moments <clears throat> that capture and and uh, uh, and stick with you, but I'm I'm blathering a bit. No, it's all right. And, and some of the some of the lectures coming back to me, and and um, I think I what I taught. Um, the hell's that book? I taught Lord of the Flies for a few years in a row, which is always oh boy, which is always like a fun experience because. You know, while you might learn a lot about a book teaching it once, certainly getting a few reps at it over the course of yes. a few years is, is really interesting. But I watched a I watched a an interview, I forget who the author was, but he was talking about why he was interested in writing the book. And I think there was like an something came out some report came out about like these kids getting, you know, stuck on this island. He he thought that the reporting was like a little idealistic, and so he was he sort of endeavored to think about like, what would it actually Golding <laughs> having spent time with teenagers as a teacher thought, well, what would it actually be like if these, you know, children were sort of stuck on this Island and that sort of thing. Yeah. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think, you know, and I'm forcing a little bit of a line here, but I think McCarthy did something similar where he was with Moby Dick. You have Ishmael is this like, really well-intended character and he's sort of he has a constitution to him um he goes along with a lot of ahab's craziness <clears throat> but you know when there's like rebellion in the group and there's like he he is sort of like this moral compass and this 
and I might be I might be getting a lot of this wrong, but I believe the professor makes this argument that the kid in Blood Meridian is almost like a reconfiguring of Ishmael. Oh, uh, yeah. Where he's not as he's not as formed. And if you reread the opening section, maybe like two pages yeah. Yeah. of Blood Meridian, it's fascinating. Like what length he goes to to sort of talk about like how unformed this kid is. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't really read. He's sort of like loses his family early on. And there's this line where that has stuck with me. I wonder if I can find it. Yeah, that's um. Uh, yeah, that I absolutely see that he is the uh, the kid is the uh, the Ishmael on the on the Pequod of the of the gang that the judge rides throughout the West, a participant, but yet not not the way that um, uh, the Delawares are. <laughs> they're they're uh, unremitting desire to uh, inflict pain and suffering if you'll humor me for a second this is sure, sure this is less than two pages in only now is the child finally divested of all that he has been his origins are become remote as is his dent his destiny and not again in all the world's turning will there be terrain so wild and barbarous to try whether the stuff of creation may be shaped to man's will or whether his own heart is not another kind of clay and I, mm. I remember that line, though I couldn't remember. I couldn't rem recall it from memory. I remember that line sticking with me because it seems like he's sort of like setting up this premise for the book, where it's like, and you know, in collaboration with that woman's lecture, it's like, okay, my experience, and it seems like Cormac McCarthy's experience is like kids are very impressionable, and would you really have this kid just show up and like have the moral compass that Ishmael has? Or, you know, would it sort of be the case that, yeah, this kid is really impressionable. And if he does bump into something evil like the judge, um, that that's just going to like rub off on him. And he's not going to like stand up to it or do something yeah. brave. He's probably going to go along with it for about 300 pages. And yeah. if, he, if he does, if he does finally stand up to it. If he does finally stand up to it, it's like it's a really tortured, you know, it's like, right, right. you know, it's hard enough to, you know, decide that <laughs> it's hard enough to decide if like a friendship is appropriate or, you know, God forbid, if you decide like a relationship with your family needs to be rethought. Right. Those okay. things are really difficult. And this is sort of that this evil person is all that kid has. And I remember yeah. that line being like, oh, yeah, he's just like telling you what he's going to do. He's he's literally yeah. going to try. He's going to put on trial whether or not the world is shaped to man's will or if man's heart is sort of just another kind of clay, which is like a profound. Mm. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. yeah, you're bringing back memories now yeah. of the book. They're I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. Of uh, ringing of the bell with the naval pistols. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that the whole quit that. The kids, and correct me if I'm wrong, my my memory of the kid is a he never has a name, which is which is telling. He's he's not supposed to be someone. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be almost a vehicle, yeah, uh, to witness this. And his his moral, um, I don't really remember much of a moral sort of evolution in him, except that at the end he decides he has to leave 
and the judge catches up with him and murders him in a toilet or something. Yes. Um, and there, there's, yeah. so there's that. That's that it. And so that, <laughs> that universalness of the, of the boy. Um, huh. Yes. Because Ishmael is, I mean, you know, um, uh, uh, Bloom's the, 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 um, the anxiety of influence, the, that basic idea. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful, simple idea that great writers, um, they, they have the burden of the past that there are mm. all these fantastic writers who came before them sure. uh, and they read them and they go, Oh my fucking God, this is good stuff. I can't do anything better than this. And Shakespeare is muttering this while he's reading the Odyssey and the Iliad. Yeah. Um, so how do you become a great writer? Well, you can't do what was done before, but what was done before was so fucking fantastic. There's no other good thing to do. So you have to misinterpret. You have to rewrite the same story over again, but you have to misinterpret it, perhaps subconsciously, perhaps consciously. So you find those echoes and you could say, you could build a Bloomian argument that, um, that Blood Meridian is a rewriting, a misinterpretation of Moby Dick. Um, he's gone back, he's tried to rewrite it again, but he can't write exactly the same novel. He can't use the same language, but but McCarthy's fascinated by this powerful novel and what it does and what it explores, but he wants to explore it in his own terms, in his own way. So the kid is a misinterpreted Ishmael because Ishmael is a character and, uh, and a fascinating one um, because there's, have you heard of the, the two Ishmael arguments? No. There are two, and it's, a, it's fascinating, it's funny. You can see it reading it, and then you pause and say, well, no, um, that there's a, we meet the Ishmael at the beginning of, of uh, Moby Dick, and he's a very um, uh, sort of punctilious fellow uh, who uh, uh, describes how he likes, a, he, he is rather partial to a buttered chicken, one could say. And he's, he's using sort of stilted prose. And then when he, he meets some, um, not, not Captain Bliffle, what's his name, the uh, Bill Dad. Uh, and he says, why, yes, I have an awful lot of experience on freshwater lakes and the, the salty sealers. Don't be handing me your nonsense about the, this is the ocean. And uh, don't be telling me you're getting on this ship to be, to be seeing different lands. Stand up there and see what you see out there. I just see nothing but ocean. And that's what you'll be seeing, son, kind of a, a moment. So he's a he's a uh, a bit of a a prude, a bit of a, and that's who Melville was. Melville was deeply un, un, uncomfortable with his sexuality, uh, and somewhat punctilious about his dress and other such things. Uh, so that's the fellow who gets on the boat, but who is writing Moby Dick? Called the person who says, "Call me Ishmael." Has al already had all this experience? Mm. They've, he's gone out. He is he has witnessed the white whale and uh, Ahab trying to stab it to death. He's floated in a coffin and been found. And now that's the person at the end of this emotional voyage who's writing the story. And I don't remember if in, it's not written from the point of view of the kid, McCormack McCarthy. He's got a, a, a universal <clears throat> a, a view of God down yeah. upon. He's watching him from above as the author. So you don't get that that mixed Ishmael, the, the kid who begins versus the one who ends um, in there. Uh, 
I think that was tricky on on Melville's part too, uh, to um, to have the the dumb Ishmael at the beginning and then the so to speak the the experienced one that's mm. actually writing and describing himself from the perspective. Uh, so it it is it's one Ishmael. There's there's no there's no two of them. Uh, mm. But that was I don't know. I'm starting to not make connections. No no no. Let me uh, let me take a stab at it. where to where to go in well the f- the first thing with the third person narrator with the boy versus ishmael the ishmael thing is i the whole weight of the biblical illusion of who ishmael is in the old testament is kind of escaping me um a cursed no that, that ahab is the cursed one yeah i forget here we've got google let me look up ishmael again non-expert of yeah, he's a prophet and patriarch of Islam. Um, son of Hagar, is it? Part of me's thinking, like Ishmael oh, names yeah. himself that at the beginning. That's not his actual name. And he's like, you could just call me that because that's sort of who I'm embodying in this story. Which is yeah. sort of which is sort of like, you know, obviously I'm putting McCarthy on the couch, which is dangerous enough, but (laughs) it's kind of like a bullshit move where it's like, yeah, of course you're going to call yourself some goddamn biblical character, right? Where it's like, what's the opposite of that? It's like a (laughs) nameless, a nameless, illiterate child (laughs) who runs away from home and just like very quickly, you know, I think if the, (laughs) if I'm remembering the language, like very quickly develops a penchant for, for violence, (laughs) for senseless violence. I think it says, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's like not celebratory he, he's not yeah it's like it's not declarative in this like proud yeah call me ishmael sense that's my first yeah. thought my other thought is that with this two ishmael idea i remember the first I, I i have i surround myself with all these books some of which i've read some of which i've read many times many of which i've never read right <laughs> And so, like, occasionally I'll just, like, grab Moby Dick and it'll be, like, in the middle of when school's busy and for whatever reason, I've decided I'm also going to endeavor upon this book and I'll read it for, you know, God knows how long. <laughs> I did that last year. I never I never read the, I think in high school they made us read some abridged version of it, but I read yeah. the full, I read the full book and I remember being struck by the first chapter and thought, wow, if anybody was really interested in becoming a better writer, they should just reread this first chapter. It's incredible. And one of the things that's like, it's so incredibly modern or it struck me as being very modern was this voice of Ishmael, the narrator, being so like clearly psychologically troubled. And he didn't strike me in that opening chapter as sort of like a prude. Although I do see your point where like later, you know, he, he like seems kind of green on the boat, but he in the opening chapter, he sort of talks about this like general feeling of discontent. And I think one of the ways he describes it is like, yeah, every now and then it's like, no matter what the weather is, it just feels like it's foggy. And when you walk by people in the street, like you just want to knock their hats off their heads. Yes, yes, yes. And he goes, that's usually when I decide it's time to get back on the sea. And I yes. remember thinking like, God damn, that's like a great, that's like, oh, you know, true. like, like immediately I'm thinking like, what is a modern version? Like, it's like, um, it reminded me of this crack hour. Crack hour wrote, um, into the wild and he wrote 
um, into thin air. Yeah. So he's, he's like an adventure reporter. In Into Thin Air, he writes about this Everest expedition, which I believe he was associated with somehow, if not on, where all a bunch of these guys die. Yeah, yeah. And in the introduction, he sort of like talks about being with his wife and like finally writing regularly and like sending off these articles and making good money. I think he might have had a kid, you know, like a pretty young kid at home. And he sort of has this Ishmael moment where he was like, yeah, you would have thought I was happy, but like I, I just like really wanted to risk my life in a way that I could not explain. <laughs> and, and the introduction of this book on Everest is like, you know, him trying to explain that to his wife. And I, I really do think that, you know, though I may not be always, like, I'm not certainly brave enough to go on Everest or anything like that. There is this like feeling where if you're going to go on a hike versus a walk, you don't want to feel perfectly safe the whole time. Ah. <laughs> and I don't know what, I don't know what that is, but oh, it's but the beautiful and the sublime. <laughs> there is, there is something very cool about that voice of Ishmael that counter to your point, actually feel felt very seasoned to me for, for being able to speak to that feeling. And, and it, it uh, well, yes, it does. That first chapter does seem like a, maybe it's that Ishmael at the end, because it does seem a little different like the whole you know how there's chapters of melville where it'll be very descriptive but then in the last paragraph he'll just like just like absolutely knock you dead with this like really po poetic summary the whole first chapter is that poetic and yeah, you're like yeah. god damn like that's that's a great opening oh. so th those are a few of my thoughts sorry for rambling myself no no not at all i think this is this is wonderful rambling because i'm trying to bring back now Moby Dick I've not read in years and and um, Blood Meridian as well. So I feel as if I'm pontificating on something I only vaguely remember in certain regards. Have you read but, any? Yeah. No, Sorry. No. Yeah, you He's, go. You're, you're absolutely right. Prude isn't the right word for that Ishmael, but it's the seasoned Ishmael describing himself. Yeah, I think you're on to something He's, there for sure. He's coming back. He's remembering just how it's that's it. It's a chicken judiciously buttered. And it's using that stilted type of language. He's he's very delicate and he's precise about his experience. But what? So he so the from, he's describing that character. But then when he gets on the ship, we never hear of Ishmael's mm. exploits. He mm. disappears as a character. He's mm. not. It, it he never has a discussion with Ahab. He never uh, gets into a fight with Starbuck. He never breaks bread with. Um, uh, uh, with Queequeg or anything like that. We we get little bits and pieces of him and that, yes, he had a friendship with, with uh, Queequeg and, and so on, but he's no longer the center of it. He, hmm. he, he, he disappears in that, yeah, that, that curious way. And, and there's the, that eye, the roving eye that sits atop of the mast and sees all before uh, in that wisdom. Um, but, you know, the other, the other, there's a, uh, a, a family friend who's a very good therapist who told me he was reading Moby Dick um, as part of becoming a better therapist because there were theories that it was the great novel about sort of quests in life. And I, I, I wanted to pause and say, well, yes and no. I, I think Moby Dick, and maybe I'm the only person who thinks this, is the great novel of suicide. And 
suicide carried further than really I can't think of anyone else because that beginning when he the sea is his suicide yeah he's talking about offing himself and the alternative is to go to sea mm-hmm. and that that desire of just destroying his life because of course once you leave land especially in the 19th century you've, you've got no contact with anybody at home you really are dead on shore and you don't come alive until you know if anybody's waiting for you they see the mast come over the horizon um you're you're truly dead on shore you don't have a career you don't have p- belongings and and he was young when he went to sea so I'm sure he had no sort of property where all that he had was in his bag. So it is kind of a, it's a social suicide. It's a, uh, a career suicide. It's, it's, it's death that way. And so to explore that self-annihilation, to go out there and, and who do you meet? It's someone whose ego is, is a, attempting to be godlike in, 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 um, in Ahab, searching the the ungraspable phantom of life, which he is going to fucking grasp if it's the last thing he does, and it is the last thing he does. Ahab mm. goes down with that that phantom of life, but it's the uh, ungraspable phantom of life. This the spirit that's you know what you what you give up, what the only thing that you carry with you in the Christian tradition in death. So and Ishmael in the coffin at the end. It's a, a treatise of, of suicide. Whereas Blood Meridian, it the boy is trying to find life, isn't he? The, I mean, the kid, he's trying to create a life. He sees it's a path into life with this mysterious judge from, you know, beyond who has connections to um, the great boiling, I don't know, matmos of human hatred and anger and destruction and torture and... <clears throat> Uh, scalping and treffening and of the skull and blah blah blah. Mm. So like trying to find life through death. I don't know. Blah blah blah. No, no. I really like the suicide argument for Moby Dick, and and I think you're on to something where that's not the case in um. That's not the case in Blood Meridian. It definitely seems like a very long being born. You know, like a long torture. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> passage to life or something, and and the judge very much does feel like, you know, this is again. Yeah, covered. I don't in know what. Blood. I, sorry. Uh, the kid covered in placental blood for the mm. entire <laughs> novel. Yeah, it is. The, the book is no doubt very disturbing. Um, I don't know what else you've read by McCarthy, but. He, I, I read The Road and I came away disappointed. I felt like I, I sort of remember he decided to become like Papa Hemingway and um, get rid of the oratund sentences. But I could be totally misremembering it. I remember it as being very spare, very. Yeah. Yeah. Spe- speaking of the market, um, one of like the only or very few interviews mccarthy's ever done was with oprah and i can't i can't imagine how much they paid him to entice him to do that wow um, he spoke with oprah oh my oh word. and it's it's hilarious he's like melted into the couch he he's almost horizontal on the couch <laughs> and the things that he's saying are just abs- absurdly deep 
and she's just doing everything she can to like make it a TV interview. It is it is wild. But at some point they start talking about like how the <laughs> how the subconscious is older than language. And that's why like dreams appear as images. And then and then she's like, so I've heard you've had three wives. And he's <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, I don't understand women. <laughs> like the, the, the whole interview is wild. Oh, and wow. he, he yeah. is honestly he's honestly just melted into the couch. Yeah, he's wearing these cowboy boots. It's wild, but um, he he seems at least in Blood Meridian, based on what I've read. Yeah, I can't. I I just recently, right before he died, strangely felt compelled to read. I had never read anything from like his Appalachian days. Yeah, that he has like those like mid, not the Midwest, like the Southwest and the the Border trilogy and No Country for Old Men. I don't know if you've ever read. All the pretty horses are um no i haven't I or haven't. like i would i would highly recommend the crossing especially as like a coming of age story oh. but but uh all the pretty horses the crossing and cities of the plain are in this trilogy called the border trilogy they're they're all phenomenal yeah. but i am like one of my deep regrets for his career is that the road became his most famous book yeah because I I don't I don't disagree with you at all. It's it's not when people are like whenever his name comes up, if they say, "Well, I read the road," I'm like, "Damn it! Like that's that really sucks." Because <laughs> it's probably not a bad book, but compared to his catalog, it's like, "Damn, I can't believe!" And all the pretty horses was try to make they tried to make that into a movie, but No Country for Old Men, for example, the Coen Brothers made that into a phenomenal movie. Oh yeah. yeah, I would yeah. love for someone to like just make one of his books into a great movie, just to just to get a little bit further away from the road. Um, yeah. Well, golly, how would you do it? You'd you'd need some. I mean, what a Wes Anderson version of uh, um, of Blood Meridian. <laughs> I heard that he was in. You know, and he, and he just passed away. But I heard that he was trying to consult somebody in the making of Blood Meridian into a movie. Yeah. And I bet you're going to have in the next, you know, who knows how long it'll last. But, you know, unfortunately, the interest in people like this spike when they die. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tries to, you know, throw together a movie in the next three years. And I'm I will be patient zero. Yeah, Uh, sure. Oh, God, there's so many ways in which it could go horribly wrong. Um, And one or two in which it could go beautifully well. Yeah. I mean, the redness in the West and the, the sunsets I and mean, the West is so beautiful. If you had a, a a movie maker who really had an eye for a gorgeous screen, a gorgeous shot, you could do so much to make it both really beautiful and utterly horrifying at the same time. So you're almost offended by your own attraction to just yeah. how beautiful all this murder is. Mm. That would be a lovely tension to create. But what um what director could do that um paul verhoven no um or what's his name the avatar guy who ruined alien the alien trilogy um i don't know i don't know much about directors yeah uh but yeah no it's a, a hard hard movie to do right uh to have its own to be its own thing because you really have to uh, the to transfer a book into a movie, you have to misunderstand three quarters of it to make a good movie. Hmm. You can't just transfer it straight. It doesn't yeah. work. 
that, that that's a great that's a great insight there's a book turned into a movie that that fits that description and i believe the director when asked about it he was like yeah i read the trilogy it was called the um the southern reach trilogy and the movie is called annihilation and the first book in the southern reach trilogy is called annihilation the book's phenomenal it's very short the trilogy is terrible it's clearly clearly the product of a book deal yeah so the first the first book's phenomenal and really short and then the other two are like he just they just forced him to produce which is terrible but they asked the director and he was like yeah i read it years ago and i just remembered it and tried to write a movie and and it's not it's not one for one but he really does nail the like the ethos of the book yeah Um, that first book at least which is yeah it's a that's a great insight yeah, you have to you have to misremember it. Yeah, I, I remember that movie. It was it was sort of psychedelic, weird alien zone. It's got yeah. out of the Gatsky brothers or something. But the the book is this amazing metaphor for, you know, it's like there's this area X and nobody can go in area X and come out of it. And yep. annihilation speaks to like this metaphor being like, you know, this like ego annihilation or this like, you know, destruction of your idea of yourself. And she like goes into this area and goes further and further down and then sort of like confronts herself. And the movie does a crazy job of of really making that sort of psychedelic. And yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But the book is does an eerily good job as well. Um, and they're not they're not the same. And but for whatever reason, the movie does really, I think, get as close as you, I could possibly imagine capturing that idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> No, that, and I think that's also an insight too. If you read it and then not think about it for 10 or 15 years, you will remember the best parts of it. Mm. You'll forget all the dreck and, and all the, all the sort of extraneous stuff. So you can keep the spirit of it. It's that's like, interesting. right now. I think I, re- I, I remember the best parts of Moby Dick mm. <laughs> and of blood meridian where I, I had to go back and go oh yeah there's this and oh yeah there's that yeah and all of these other um details and some of them will be beautiful and gorgeous but they're not the the spirit of it the mm. the um the feeling that um you, you read moby dick and you begun to stare out to sea thoughtfully yeah no that's <laughs> a great body that simple emotion of wait a minute what what do i not know um there's an awful lot underwater that I can't see. Yeah. And there's the metaphor for what I just don't get out of life. Interesting. Well, in tribute to his life, I would highly recommend you, you rebrush up against uh, McCarthy. And if you, if you're not sure where to begin, I would not recommend you reread the road, but I would, I would recommend the crossing or all the pretty horses, both, both phenomenal. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't go back to the road. It it very much seemed like a, um, a, a one note concept. It was fun. It was, mm. but it was it was lightweight. Um, it's um, it's funny it, how how great authors do that. I mean, getting back to my favorite hobby horse, Pynchon. He wrote who I've never he, read anything of, by the way. No, so you can, yeah, you should proceed knowing that and you can yeah. judge me you can judge me accordingly that's fine no no not at all but uh 
I, I mean, he, he, he wrote V, his first book, which was, it was good, it was fun, but it was a bit of a, a bit of an editorial mess. Hmm. And then I, whether he realized it or somebody else did, he wrote the very short uh, Crying of Lot, Lot 49. That's a little polished gem of a book. Hmm. And if you want an access to the Pynchon's world, uh, Crying of Lot is, is the great entry point. Um, short, very 60s, uh, silly, funny, uh, playing with themes of paranoia and who's really in control of the world and our experience and, and what things mean. Hmm. And then he wrote Gravity's Rainbow, which is just, uh, it's, a, it's an atomic bomb of a book. Um, and so many people can't get into it because much like, uh, shall we say, the difference between The Road and Blood Meridian, uh, this is Blood Meridian on you know, 50 of them all packaged in together. And you read the first two pages and you have no clue what's going on. And that's in part what Pynchon's trying to do to you. You're entering somebody's dreams, um, somebody who manages dreams for a living and what that experience is to manage someone else's fantasies. Uh, so you have two consciousnesses, they're going over each other. It's just, it's bizarre and marvelous. And I think it was on my third reading of it, I finally began to figure out, okay, I think I know what's going on here, maybe. Um, but then from there, he went on to write a bunch of other not particularly good books. Hmm. Uh, one of them, Inherit Vice, became a movie. It was, uh, and it's an okay movie. Uh, but again, really lightweight stuff. Hmm. Uh, the uh, gravities, and I think Pynchon knew this. It, and why, I guess maybe after you have a, a huge experience of birthing this fantastic book, you, you only have whispers left, and that's what happened to McCarthy. Hmm. He got to the road, and he just, okay, I'm going to write a really simple, straightforward thing here. Because the, 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 the opening line for Gravity's Rainbow is, a screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but never quite like this. And he's describing a V2 rocket, the very first object that had man-made object to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. Um, this is something that human humanity has never done before, the first great tool that allows us to explore the stars. We're currently using it in 1944 to blow up London. Uh, I mean, we as in humanity, not we as in I'm part of the Nazi party. Um, and uh, a screaming has come across the sky, but because it's supersonic, the V2 arrives first, blows up a building, and then you hear the sound of the rocket coming in. Hmm. And that was very disturbing to the people of London at the time. You'd hear a kaboom, and then whoosh hmm. of the rocket coming in. So it's it's the the, the, the reverse a reversal of experience. So beautiful metaphor, incredible idea. And he begins the next novel with a, a stoned hippie waking up, hungover hippie waking up and blue jays are outside of his room and he describes the screaming of the blue jays. Hmm. And it's such a, a metaphor <clears throat> brought down to earth. I, I really sort of thought, okay, Pynchon's telling us he's, he's not He's not dealing with anything big anymore here. He's, he's talking about a, 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 a hippies hangover and it's not rockets screaming anymore. It's blue jays. 
Um, I should go back and look at the road and see if McCarthy does something similar to say, you know, here I am. I'm just messing around with this silly little book because I got paid a lot of money for it and I can write it on weekends while I watch Jeopardy or something. Yeah, I don't. I am. I imagine you're a much better writer. So there's a part of me that's. That's very slow to. uh, It's very slow to point at somebody like Pynchon and say that. And I certainly have. I've never read him, but I almost wonder. Yeah, that rocket thing is, is pretty profound. But if it is truly the next opening line, it is interesting that he has that screaming persist. And I wonder if it's, you know, I, I wonder, look, he wrote a book about those rockets and he's fascinated about it. But then he's looking around and he's like, people don't give a shit. They don't give a shit about the book. Probably. Yeah. They don't give a shit about the rockets or the metaphor or any of that. And you have this hungover hippie who's just like thinking about the goddamn birds. You know what I mean? Like th- that to me, that to me could be profound. And I might be projecting quite a bit there, but that that could be profound in a sort of like meta, like the self awareness kind of way. But who oh, knows? The book could have sucked. I have no idea. I have no idea. It, it's hugely presumptuous to get into a writer's mind and decide what was there. I mean, it, it's an old an old saw about woodworkers. If you have four woodworkers and put them into a room, they're going to have six opinions, six angry opinions with each other. Uh, and so with a writer's mind, what, what went into the choices of it's, and it's simply the, the repeat of the use screaming in the opening sentence or paragraph uh, that is, that seems curious. Um, why pension put it in there? And there are a thousand ways, but see, this is where criticism, I think, is its own art. Um, where critics are creating a beautiful dream about mm. what a book means, and that's a pleasure in itself to read. Whether it's accurate or not to describe the author is a whole other question. Uh, and what the what a critic's job is are they are they really there to help the rest of us understand this book, or are they really there having a discussion amongst themselves? about what it means because it's fun to talk about these things amongst themselves. This this might be too specific of a deep dive um, for the thread to be noticeable. And and I introduce this with, with great caution. But there is this one specific part, and I'm sure there are several, but there's one specific part from which I'll make this argument that Joyce in Ulysses has uh, Stephen, one of the main characters, make a <laughs> who's who's arguably him who makes a really weird um, lecture. He does this lecture where he talks about Shakespeare's life. I don't know if any of this is coming to mind, but it's it's a fascinating reread because it's yes, sort of this yes. like. Yeah, yeah, that's part of the day. He goes off to. Yeah, he makes this argument that every author is every character in their book, and he has this like all in all and all of us line where you know every every author is sort of just like walking through everybody in his life and sort of picking picking pieces of people up and then sprinkling them down in his book, right? And so he he goes down this path that you just advised 
not to go down or, or cautioned at least against. <laughs> and he does it with Shakespeare, which is like, you know, like you could imagine everybody. And even there's critics in the crowd who are like, you know, you can't do that. You can't go into his mind. And then he just like keeps going deeper and deeper. He's like, he's like, I think Shakespeare was a genius because he was tortured by Anne Hathaway's infidelity. And he just like keeps going deeper and deeper in this like, you know, him, him imagining where Shakespeare was coming from. And there have been really interesting commentaries, one of which is this guy, Rene Girard, who has this like mimetic theory, which is like that desire is sort of copied. And he points to this speech. He, he points to this speech by Stephen Dedalus as being the closest thing or the closest criticism he's seen to what he thinks is actually going on in Shakespeare. And mm. Gerard has this book called a, a theater of envy. And it's about his, his theory of mimetic desire being sort of applied to all these different Shakespeare plays. Yeah. Um, but he, at the end of it, this guy, you know, in Stephen Dedalus' speech, this guy stands up and he's supposed to be like, I forget, like, I can't remember if it's Elliot or Yates or one of those, but he has, you know, like letter, letter name. It's like clearly an, a nod to like who, you know, the, the Irish. I guess it would have been Yates. Um, established intellectual community sort of calls him out and he's like, do you even believe he's like, you brought us all this way for like a French triangle, <laughs> right? Like. You're telling us that he was sort of like in this, you know, yep. menage a trois sort of situation. And Stephen's like, yes. And he's like, do you believe your own theory? And he goes, no. And then the whole crowd leaves and they're like, yeah, F you. You know, you don't even believe your own shit. <laughs> and then he has this line where he's like, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, which is like a Paul, like a yeah. St. Paul line. But then he goes, he goes, what helps me to believe? ego mensch or you know uber mensch or ego something or like my own superpowers or something like that and then he's like what makes me not believe and he says um other folk or something like that and there's this idea that like joyce really did have this here seemed to have this theory of like what made shakespeare's life produce great art yeah. And the interesting thing is Joyce himself had a tortured love life. <laughs> oh, yes. And and he also is this like literary genius. So, you know, you have this, of course. Right. Like, yeah, tr don't try to go into the mind of, of great authors like it's really dangerous. But then you have one of the best doing it for one of the best. And yeah. himself is sort of like everybody's cautioning him not to do it. Um, and then he himself <clears throat> admits that, like, yeah, it's probably not true. But then when everybody leaves, he's like, damn it. Like, I really do believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry. That's a bit of a rant, but but it is no, it's fascinating. Totally to no, apologize. Like there, there is this wisdom and cautioning against it. But then there's this attraction to trying to do that because, you know, you're doing it out of respect. But then you're also, as you're saying, sort of like painting this picture that perhaps you want to see. Uh, but it is fascinating watching Joyce do that himself for one of the best Shakespeare. Yeah, no, I. I... I I've, I have not read Ulysses in a long, long time, so I have sure. only the vaguest memory of that scene. And no one but blames you. As you, describe, as you describe, absolutely. And it, it, uh, Joyce, I, I think we all do. We all have to go into what did the author intend. Um, and our, uh, our, the, 
the academic reserve against cautioning against this has this idea that there is a universal truth mm. that academics have some kind of responsibility to make sure that their work is scientific and that we're not coming up with with uh, uh, suppositions that turn out after we discover more turn out to be fake or false or not real or wrong. <laughs> and I think that's the, the wrong way to look at the critic's role or, or how art is created. Um, I'm remembering, and I, I'm remembering it because I just used it in my book on hands uh, in talking a bit about uh, making things that are both beautiful and useful is what is, what do we, how do we know what is beautiful? And we have two mm. concepts of it. One is it's just in the viewer's eye and the other is that, no, there's this ideal beauty. And only if you're really smart and careful can you ever really understand something close to it. But you'll never quite get there because it's ideal and it's out there. And I, I rather like um, uh, a guy named Arthur Danto, who's, and I'm quoting somebody who's describing his work, that um, art is a form of communication that co-evolves with its own evaluation. And this makes all the sense in the world to me, because here you have someone who says, a rose is a rose is a rose. How is that powerful? Well, it's powerful because somebody else says, oh, I like that. There's the critic. The critic who says, oh, I like that, inspires the artist to say, oh, you like that? Let me try something else on you. Hmm. And it becomes a, a cycle, a, a, a feedback loop, which is the wrong word because that brings up, you know, ringing ears at a concert. Ow, no. But the, the, they train each other, the critic and the artist, to create what each responds to. And this isn't just an artist and a critic sitting in a room off somewhere. This is everybody. This is what, how, you know, um, pop music, if lots of people listen to it, uh, millions of people like a Taylor Swift song that tells Taylor Swift and the rest of the world, hey, the kind of stuff she does is good. And other people try to do something similar. So the, the evolution of art and what we decide is good and powerful really depends on the response we get and how that pushes back. So with, with um, um, uh, Daedalus in this, he's talking to his critics. <laughs> Joyce is imagining uh, Daedalus talking to his critics and saying, here's, here's what, what, I've, what Joyce has found in his life. He's put into his character and his character is finding the resonance in Shakespeare and then the critics are giving their response. And then he's having a response to their response. <laughs> and the response that they have to his response is that section of Ulysses. Hmm. <clears throat> I am really curious about the way that my instinct disagrees with that, because I, I wonder if it, you're obviously you write and you've written different kinds of books but what i'm assuming is like leading your theory here is that your art has a function you know and I, I, forgive me if i'm misspeaking but to the degree that you make woodworking art 
right? Right. Or aren't out of wood. And if I've perused your website correctly, <laughs> then there's there's a oh, there's some you. function thank of furniture, right? Yeah. Whereas like, you know, I the sort of like frustrated writer, English teacher <laughs> is like, no, like it doesn't matter what people think. If it's great, it's great. You uh, know what I mean? Like, so, so your, your has a function where my function is like, you better appreciate it or you're, you're an ignoramus, uh, you know, which is obviously I'm making a character of what I actually think, but Joyce himself has this like great aesthetic theory that he, he walks out and I'm interested what you think about this because I, I wonder how it connects to, well, Bob, so your uh, art is a function. There, sure. In your, it, just to elaborate a little bit, as a writer, if, if you're feeling that sense of, I, I don't care what other people think, I, I think it's beautiful, I'm writing sure. it. There, there are two ways to look at that. One is that you're at the first part of the process. Hmm. You're creating the art that until you publish hmm. is still in that first step. When you publish it, you're going to get everybody. You're going to get um, uh, your your mother is going to say it's lovely, dear. Would you like some from tea? You know the, the the very kind, loving comments. You're also going to get the trolls sure. who who are going to they're going to read it and they're not even going to read it. They're just going to say, "Well, this guy's an idiot because he has a beard on the back cover, and sure. all guys with beards are assholes." Sure. And you, know, sure. you didn't even read it. How can you comment that my and you'll feel that frustration at not being understood. You'll feel the, the delight when someone does connect and say, oh, my God, when you wrote that, mm. man, was it powerful. And they'll tell you why it was powerful. And you'll say, that's exactly what I meant to do. And that resonance is just mind-blowingly delightful. You connected mm. it that way. Whatever your experiences are, they'll influence what you do next. You will likely have some response to that troll, which is either I'm going to grow my beard out more full to say, screw yeah. you, <laughs> or you're going to say, fuck, I don't want that kind of comment anymore. I'm going to shave it off. Sure. You'll have some <laughs> response, whatever it may be. Interesting. Um, and it will influence what you write. And so there's that, that mm. how your audience will shape you. Um, whatever your response is, it's a yeah. response to the audience. Do you, do you think that should be the case if you had a son who was a writer or a daughter and, and they said, damn, I'm getting this feedback and, uh, you know, I'm going to shave my beard or do this or, <laughs> you know, my books are going to be shorter or longer. I might, you know, again, I might be like hopelessly romantic here, but I would think my instinct would be like, no, like what you're producing is actually like go like w people are going to benefit because you're. If they benefit at all and you can't really predict this, it's because you're looking inward. Yeah. And then you're producing something outward, right? To the degree that people enjoy what you found within yourself or not, whatever, right? But I think, I think like fine tuning, actually, I would hope that my, that my process would be actually insulated from that. And I'm, uh, not, and I'm not naive to think that, that that isn't going to happen, but I would actually hope that I would actually try to resist that, not look at the comments, not, you know, and, and again, <clears throat> having right. not well, been exposed to it, I'm sure that I would devour the comments and I would start yelling at anybody who didn't, you know what I mean? I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure I would violently react. Oh, um, it's the hardest part. The, yeah. uh, the there are 
I don't know, 30 some comments in my door book. And a couple of them really get under my skin because they mm. obviously even open the book before they commented. Sure. Um, it's like, what? Whatever. Mm. Uh, the, uh, yeah, no, with the, the idea that you, when you, if you begin with the, the concept that you are an island and you are yourself and you want to create something from that for other people, Hmm. um you're absolutely right you should absolutely and if and if my son or my daughter were to say i don't know i'm getting these criticism what should i do no i i well first of all no no advice that i could give is going to change they're going to react the way that they're going to react to the world um and yes you shouldn't be a, a leaf in the wind be carried away by one negative comment and oh my <laughs> god i have to you know, this troll hates what I'm doing, so I have to get another profession, never write again. Sure. <clears throat> but who are you inside? And I would say you're a human being, and human beings are social animals. Hmm. Uh, we use language, and language is a communication device. It's a two-way circuit. It doesn't come as just sort of like preformed thought that you hand to someone else. All communication, including what we're doing now, is a dialogue. And a book is only the first, an opening shot in a dialogue. Hmm. You're, it, it, it's, it allows you to compose your thoughts so you're not carried away by you know, the moment um, in a conversation, the way it can go this way or that way. You're, you're, you, you have the, the solitude and the time to really say something. But it's, it's, it's absolutely the beginning of a conversation. Hmm. Uh, uh, back to the beginning of um, of, uh, of Moby Dick with Kalme Ishmael, which can be understood in so many delightful ways. Yeah, that's what interesting. Is, it, one is you. It, it's like he's stating his pronouns in a very modern way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is just how we should refer to him amongst ourselves, and we're not actually in dialogue with Ishmael. Mm. And yet, the other way we can misinterpret it is that we're 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 overhearing the writer talking with someone telling his tale like over dinner like okay we finished the meal melville sits down and sort of begins to think and says all right call me ishmael if you have any questions about this um going into that into a dialogue kind of a moment so no you should you should never have that i think as a writer you should never feel like you're simply pleasing other people you should be whatever it is that pleases them that's a very poor mindset. Um, mm. But I think absolutely you have to realize you're creating a dialogue, mm -hmm. you're communicating with other people, you're saying something to them, uh, and they absolutely have the right to say something back. Uh, and when they say something back, you absolutely have the right to respond however, however you do, which is to say, well, you're an idiot, you didn't understand what I, what I said, uh, go jump in a lake, um, or you misunderstand. And then you can say, well, did they misunderstand because I wasn't clear or did they misunderstand because they didn't pay attention? Hmm. I, in the modern age, I think it's largely because nobody's paying attention. Our, our, our attention spans are minute. Um, we don't want uh, to spend the time to sit down and read the first chapter of Melville because his sentences are long. <clears throat> I, I think even more interestingly, imagine if, if imagine if uh, the critics, I'm assuming they're critics, whoever wrote those comments that that did not jive with you well about the door book. Imagine if they could speak with you 
let's imagine that there's a hundred of them. Sure. I'd be really just just because I'm not good at math. Let's um, I, I just could not imagine that all a hundred would actually be willing to talk to you for over an hour. Right. I, th- I think right. it's fascinating where it's like they're not. Of course, they're not willing to read the book, but they're not even imagine if you could call Pynchon, how long you would be able to talk to him. Right. <laughs> they're not even willing to talk to you long enough to understand. And I think that, yeah, that should ultimately be the goal. If you're interested in something in good faith that you should try to understand where that other thing is coming from or maybe that book or that person. Yeah. And and I don't I wouldn't interpret those comments in good faith if I had to imagine that they wouldn't be willing to actually dialogue with you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> of course, you're, you're looking for the genuine engagement yeah. where someone really has taken the time, uh, the care, perhaps even a touch of empathy to read with delight and with, shall we say, the expectation that there is something there that's worthwhile, that if you spend the time you will take it out of there. And it's true, trolls, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not after that. They're after the, the power zing to you know, knock down whatever's around him. They'll always have some flippant comment that, mm. that makes them feel powerful for a moment. And that isn't a valuable uh, engagement. It's, well, it's valuable in the sense that it's understanding human nature. Because after all, as a writer, who are we talking to? Are we trying to talk to pretty much everybody, or at least sure. give everybody the chance? Um, then yes, if a hundred people uh, glance, uh, one, two will actually read and find something useful or beautiful or useful in what you have to say or what we have to say. Um, and that, and I, I'm, I would certainly not say you should be a, a as I said before, a leaf in the wind. To allow every possible comment to flutter, I think it's the one of the greatest challenges of being a Hollywood celebrity. Um, and uh, they keep reading things in the newspaper that are not true about them or misconstruing, and it drives them mad to be hmm. misunderstood or misappreciated. Uh, and it's because they are—they're listening to the trolls. They're listening to the people that are just, you know, using them for their own power or their own this or that. Uh, but uh, it's so easy to get caught up in it and then lose focus. Uh, mm. oh. You you mentioned earlier someone's definition of art. I just I wanted to go off. I wanted to jump off of that, but I couldn't remember sure. who who that was. Um, well, I got it from a, a writer named David Prum in a book called The Evolution of Beauty, mm. and he's an ornithologist. Uh, who brings up uh, uh, a theory, uh, one of Darwin's theories from his second, um, from his second book, The Descent of Man, uh, in which Darwin uh, struggles and comes up with a solution to the problem of the, of the peacock's tail. Sure. Uh, he can't find, Darwin can't find any reason why a peacock would need this giant ornate tail because hmm. it doesn't help their survival. It doesn't, but it could be argued that it shows their fitness. So, it, so Darwin came up with with uh, sexual selection, uh, essentially the role of beauty as an evolutionary force. Hmm. And this is the this is the core argument that a form of communication co-evolves with its own evaluation. The reason the peacock has that beautiful tail is that the peahens like it; they have an aesthetic appreciation, and it's nothing more than that. Than they 
really enjoy the beauty of the peacock's tail. Now we can we see the peacock's tail as beautiful, and that just happens to be a cross-species coincidence. The star-nosed mole, the male star-nosed mole, is appealing to the female star-nosed mole, and we look at them and go, "Ugh." Um, but their their aesthetics are in a co-evolution with each other, uh, driving. Um, driving the forms of the male through the female's eye and driving the forms of the female through the male eye. Uh, and this sexual selection uh, is a secondary pressure that mixes with the, um, with the natural selection on what traits give an advantage to uh, uh, survival or to uh, competition. And so those two forces work together. And so Prum talks about the evolution of beauty. Uh, we're very uncomfortable with it still, this idea that, that beauty has a real power and a real force in our lives and the way in which we make decisions based on it, uh, the, the decisions in our mate, the decisions and the objects that we have in our lives. Uh, we don't pick them up just because they're useful. We also pick them up because they give us pleasure. Uh, and pleasure is comes from beauty, not just visual beauty, but every type of beauty, um, which is a whole other discussion there. And Prum gets the he he talks a, a lot about Darwin and this this evolution, but he he points out that Arthur, it's Arthur Danto in the '60s and '70s, I think, who came up with this somewhat. Um, uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek pointing out that the art world is its own little space. The reason we can't really understand or regular people can't really understand modern art is that it's artists talking to critics and the critics talking to the artists hmm. and artists talking to artists and being influenced by each other. So if you come from, from outside, you don't understand why Jean-Michel Basquiat paints the way he does, unless you understand his influences. Uh, maybe, maybe it's Picasso, maybe someone else, and what were Picasso, Picasso's influences, and and what critics, uh, you know, which which paintings sold, did what influence did those have? Uh, what is the commentary in Basquiat's work upon other artists? And so there's a whole body of knowledge and a whole culture that when you know it, when you learn it, you can appreciate what you see on, the, on, a, on, a, um, uh, on an easel, or it's not on an easel, on a, on a canvas. And they drive each other so that what's considered beautiful in art isn't what people outside of the art world consider beautiful. It's what people within the art world consider beautiful, that they are truly creating a form of communication that co-evolves with its own evaluation. Hmm. That if you create something that other art critics don't consider beautiful, you're not gonna sell a thing because they're the gatekeepers to the buyers. I could create something that I find beautiful and if I take it to a gallery, if the gallery owner says, are you kidding? Who are you? I, what, what, where, where's, your, your art is irrelevant. It doesn't connect with anything else in this art world. Um, there are lots of nice colors, but you know, who are you, who are, who, who's your dialogue with? Who are, who are, what are your influences? What, what, and that, that just wouldn't be there. So I would not be, I would not be accepted. 
yeah, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound great. <laughs> <laughs> I um I want to offer this up because my head is bouncing around and I want to just have this on the table because I have a feeling I'm not going to reach any conclusions. So we might as well just put everything on no, the table. No conclusions <laughs> to any of this. It's just ideas. It's a play of ideas. Well, yeah, I love I love this idea of like the evolution of beauty and and maybe even like sexual selection acting on art and and vice versa that's fascinating to me because that might even be the case in my interpretation of that co-evolution thing with the artist and the critic where where it's like you know (laughs) i was reminded the one time i tried to buy a car that everybody's got to eat because this guy was trying to get my uh interest rate up to a certain (laughs) (laughs) but but it's true everybody i guess does need to eat and and uh yeah, there's I don't know if there's like a little bit of selection humming in the background of like, you know, the artist interacting with the critic, although. And I'll offer this up in a second, I, I wonder if that would still be in my category of art, and I know that sounds really snobby, but. Joyce in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man has Stephen Dedalus, Dedalus. The father of Icarus tries to leave the island of Crete. He makes the the labyrinth, right? So he's like a craftsman, as you know, and um, he's very useful. And and I think King Minos or whatever his name is, the political dictator at the time, is like, well, this is a you know bright young man. He could be very useful for me. I'm going to sort of you know put him on the payroll. And Daedalus is like, now nah, I want to kind of create my own thing. So I'm going to escape the island of Crete for the mainland, and I'm going to do that using my art. And Joyce has, as the epigraph of his first published novel, The Portrait of the Artist's Young Man, he has that line from Daedalus, which is he set his, his eyes, he set his sights on wings of unknown art. Oh. And he even refers to Ireland as, you know, like, this is a place where they put nets out to catch you. I'm going to fly past those nets and I'm going to sort of use my art to do that. And and so in the novel, he set, you know, if his art's really important to him, he sets out to create his aesthetic theory. That is his theory of like beauty and art. And it's yep. a fat it's a fascinating theory. And just if you could give me a second, it <clears throat> boils down to this. There's proper art and improper art, according to Joyce. Um, improper art is art that moves you to do something. Um, that could be art that moves you to vote a certain way he would call that didactic or art that moves you to desire something um that could be the advertisement with the really attractive person next to a refrigerator you see the person you see the refrigerator you're moved towards something maybe you're like i want to buy that refrigerator he calls that pornography yeah and he he makes the argument that most art is didactic pornographic or didactic pornography and again, the underlying thing is that it moves you to something. Proper yeah. art, he makes the argument, arrests you. And he uses as his like model for this Dante. Dante's, you know, goes to the stream. He sees Beatrice or Beatrice. And he's like just absolutely captured by this thing. And he's just stuck. And uh, Joyce calls this aesthetic arrest. And he says that the function of proper art is just just simply arrest you. 
And the beautiful things are things that happen or occur in nature that arrest you. A beautiful sunset, a beautiful person, uh, the ocean, looking at the mountains. These are things you don't look at the mountains and say, you know, maybe maybe you do. I want to go skiing or something. You look at the mountains and you're like, my God, that's magnificent. I could just stare at this for hours. Yes. Yes. And then you see the advertisement that's like you have people <clears throat> skiing down the mountain. You're like, damn, I'm, that's a beautiful picture. I'm going to go ski. <clears throat> um, and I, I had the I was reminded of this recently. I was in Chicago. I was by the water tower and there's this guy playing this electric cello. It was just a fascinating thing. And you know, there are some songs that were obviously beautiful, but I was kind of watching them and I was thinking about them. And then he played some version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And it was like literally everybody stopped <laughs> and they all just watched him. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, it was, even yeah. while it was happening, I wasn't thinking. Yeah, this. It there like, it is. After. Yeah, it was after he stopped. I was like, damn, everybody just stopped like that. Was, everybody, you know, there was that aesthetic arrest thing. Um, and I'm reminded of that. There's that Buddhist scene where he's sort of teaching and somebody asks him a question and he just like holds up a, a lotus flower. He just holds up a flower and yeah. everybody's like, well, what are you doing with the flower? And there's like one guy in the crowd who gets it, who's like, oh, yeah, yeah that's beauty or whatever. So I'm interested because your art or one of your arts. Making things with your hands. Oftentimes, the things I'm assuming that you make have a function. Yeah. But as an artist, are you do you look at like a beautifully made chair or table and bench and you're just like, oh, my God, or do you immediately want to use that thing? I wonder how that theory, <laughs> because because Joyce is obviously interested in that theory as a writer. And he was like, you know, what does the writer have? The writer has like the rhythm of his prose. And if he really refines the rhythm of his prose, it can arrest the reader. And I'm I'm interested in how that theory either jives or doesn't jive with with your own art. Well, you'll have to read my book. Um, <laughs> I'd be happy to. Plus plug. That was a shameless plug. I would. I. We're all just, about those here. Uh, just Joyce, um, talk about the experience of that arrest. What does that feel like? What does that constitute? What is what is the experience of that arrest? He just he calls it sort of arrest. You just have to watch, kind of thing. Or yeah, all. It's a great question. I think because. Dante was sort of his um, yeah Dante was sort of his hero in this regard and you can make the argument he sort of the rhythm of his books over his career tried to mirror that of Dante although he didn't get to Paradiso um, <clears throat> it seems like you have this arrest it's not described the feeling is not described it's just that you're stuck in this be but if Dante's the hint there Dante's description of that arrest with Beatrice is that like he saw in her and his language is like the Trinity. He saw in her the Trinity. And like, you know, if, if we were to secularize that, you would be like, OK, it's almost like this idea. I'm reminded of Algeus Huxley, where it's like <laughs> with the proper dosage of mescaline <laughs> or whatever he takes the chair, the chair that he looks at can be, you know, enough to contemplate the whole universe like that yeah. chair that he sees while he's having yeah. that peyote experience or whatever he's having is a meditation enough and you have yeah. that sort of same idea with the buddhist flower and i wonder and dante's idea was that once he had that experience all of his art was trying to recreate that 
Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like Carl Jung. He has that dream. And then he's like, yeah, my the rest of my career was trying to like intellectualize what I saw in that dream. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that brings us further, <laughs> further away or closer. <laughs> but yeah, that's it's kind of this thing that happens that you can intellectualize. And then everything that happens after that is you're trying to articulate it or intellectual. I'm reminded of maybe Huxley even saying that, like, the first thing that you need to know about my experience is that words cannot really describe. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, and words are are really poor cousins to experience. Uh, they and I think they're the most powerful when they can point to something that we have felt before. Mm. Uh, so we can say, oh, yeah, I do know what it's like to see Beatrice. <laughs> yeah, because I've felt that I, yeah. I've seen my Beatrice hmm. and I, I know it so all the words need to do is to conjure that memory in us hmm. um, I do yeah I <clears throat> um, in the, the beautiful with, without trying to minimize um, Joyce whatsoever uh, and perhaps bring bring his very thought very you know, insightful and powerful words to my level I'd say that's the experience of pleasure from beauty. Hmm. Um, and I use those terms very loosely because I, I feel words uh, are, 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 are tricky. So the, the more broad they can apply to what is beautiful and what is pleasure. Um, yes, didactic and pornographic, uh, understood, manipulative at some level or other where you feel the action, you feel the intent put upon you. Whereas this, the, um, the, the being arrested by a vision of, in this case, of feminine beauty um, is, uh, uh, is simply the experience of pleasure. It's to me, I would, I would use that term, uh, the same type of pleasure that I have when I see a beautiful object but at a much tinier degree, because of course that's a transporting moment to see the Trinity and, and Beatrice, whereas uh, a beautifully made teacup um, is a tiny little bit of pleasure. That, that's a beautiful teacup. And I think for, for, you know, in a daily life, if you have a really ugly, you know, some tourist tchotchka that you look at and go, oh God, that thing is so, you, you, you see the other side of it. And perhaps so many of the of the little pleasures in the small beauties of our life, we don't really recognize. We just experience them as, yeah, I'm comfortable moving through this room. I'm, mm. I'm happy to use these plates and saucers. Uh, this building that I live in, I like. Uh, and only when we see its ugliness, when we see how discordant and off-putting, do we go, oh, good God, I hate going down sitting of going through that building um, you know, that the, we have that that contrast so you know the the beauty of literature the the beauty of an object uh, the usefulness of it the usefulness of it everything we also hmm, um, being used is the the pornography uh, uh, and uh, the didacticism, but usefulness. I think beauty is also usefulness. Beauty brings us pleasure or usefulness. Oh, sorry. Um, no, that's all right. I'm, I'm also like 
<laughs> an object that brings us, that gives us a beautiful object that gives us pleasure or a beautiful person or a beautiful experience that gives us pleasure is useful. Mm -hmm. That is useful to obtain that pleasure of life because we have really no other, no other um, reason uh, to be here. You get into this question of purpose. Why on earth the purpose of life is to live um, the way that living beings have lived for millions of years on this planet. I, I can't say I believe that the earth was created 4,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, according to Bishop Berkeley. Um, that, uh, so what has life been doing for all these millions of years? Precisely what life does. It lives. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it, it, it comes about, it lives, it reproduces, it goes away. And so that's our purpose, is, is living life. Um, and if Darwin is right, and I, I think he is, and, and Prum and uh, Prum's interpretation of it, there are two forces that push life along. One is the need to replicate itself. And the other is to do the things that get us to replicate ourselves, which is to reproduce. So how do you do that? It's the motivation of beauty and pleasure. Hmm. Without those motivations, we're not going to bother to reproduce ourselves. Uh, and this is the core of my book. Uh, beauty and pleasure is the motivation for us to work with our hands and to make things that allow us to survive. Um, it's a pleasurable act to make a tool. And that's encoded in us to ensure our survival. So work when it's properly done is enjoyable. Mm. Uh, and we've forgotten this in the, in the modern age where jobs are all about pain and fear and you have to work unless you get, and so you get money, otherwise you'll be homeless. Sure. And you have to work harder and you have to work, stay longer hours. And we have all this, uh, this, this strange kind of motivation and association of work with pain and necessity and what we, and luxury and uh, relaxation vacation is what's actually pleasurable. And it mm. isn't, it's true work that is pleasurable, but I'm wandering off. Do, do you think that building something with your hands is more meaningful in a world where you don't have to, like you're choosing to do that? Uh, yes, if have to is, is have to is, is based on the motivation of fear. Uh, it's based on the motivation of coercion. So anything that you're, that you do out of fear or coercion cannot be pleasurable by definition. So when you're forced to do something, the only way you're going to find pleasure in that work is if you can overcome that coercion, that, that force and that fear and find something else in it where you justify, <laughs> even though I'm being forced to do this, I actually really enjoy it. It's because yeah, yeah, yeah. you found the pleasure in the work. <laughs> that sounds like Sisyphus or something. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. There's, you know, like the whole, like, uh, like T.S. Eliot in the wasteland. There's one interpretation of the wasteland, the poem that's like Tiresias, your guide, your guide on that poem is sort of introducing you to, to a number of people who are simply doing what they need to do or what they have to do or should do. Huh. And it creates this sort of like wasteland. And you have you have all these great like um like the grail myths. And one of my favorites, Parsifal. Oh, yes. Like one, of the, one of the later grail myths. 
he's the hero because he doesn't he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He stumbles into being a knight, and then when he loses the Grail, he sees the Grail. He, he loses it because he actually reverts back to his training, where he's like he sees the king and he's he knows that the king is in pain, and he wants yeah. to ask the king a question, like "Are you okay?" and he has this compassionate impulse and he stifles it because he remembers his nightly training was like, you don't ask questions unless you know, you don't speak unless somebody asks you a question and you certainly yeah. don't ask anyone questions. Um, and the grail disappears and they're like, shame on you. Like how you should have asked that question. Right. So you raise an interesting point of like delivery, <laughs> like going past that coercion and going past like those, those forces that tell you what you need to do or should do that delivers, you know, in my interpretation, sort of delivers you from the small wastelands that you might experience. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yeah, finding that, that true empathy. Um, the, 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 the grail, the, the Percival, those myths, I, I absolutely love them. Mm. Um, a favorite movie is The Fisher King. Uh, I've never seen it. On, on those uh, exact um, yeah. uh, themes that... Uh, the Fisher King, it, it's a grail myth, and, and he sends out his knights to find the grail, which he knows will cure his wound, which he has had since he was a young and ambitious king. And all of his, and the fool arrives, and uh, the king asks the fool for a glass of water, a drink of water, and the fool hands him the grail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, king, that feels very Parsifal inspired because the Fisher King is yes. the name of the king, and yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and the, the line the line from the king is, "How could you find what all my great knights could not find?" Mm. And the fool's answer is simply, uh, "I I don't know about any of this quest. You simply had a need, and I responded to it." Mm. And there, there is that complete lack of compulsion, uh, complete, and the the. Uh, truly a foolish lack of sort of understanding what you should be doing or need to be doing or have to be doing at any given time. And um, the simple response to another human being, the empathetic response. Uh, and there, there is right in there is, is, is pleasure and beauty. Um, back to this question of literature as communication, not as, the expression, a one-way expression of thought. Uh, language is a tool of communication. Um, it's, it, <clears throat> incidentally, we also use it as thought uh, or what I would say a small, a small part of conscious thought. The vast majority of what our brain is doing is, is beyond the, mm -hmm. uh, the conscious realm. So in the, in, in, that's a beautiful moment. It's a very beautiful moment in the movie Fisher King, it's a beautiful moment uh, in any of our lives when just by doing something thoughtlessly, we do something that was profoundly affecting and beautiful for another person. Um, you're, you're young, but I think one of the greatest gifts in life are the one or two moments when someone comes back to us and says, do you remember that thing that you did like mm -hmm. 10 years ago? I can't thank you enough for it. I keep thinking of it. And mm -hmm. you can't remember what you did. Yeah, it's like what I, I did something nice. I, sure. I, I don't know. And there that's that to me is one of the most beautiful of all possible things. 
because mm. uh, it wasn't manipulative, it wasn't didactic, it wasn't pornographic, there was no motivation, there was no usefulness. You simply did something that was powerful and meaningful and beautiful for another person. Mm. Um, and uh, if there's any lesson from Parsifal, I think that's, that's, that's it. But see here, and this comes to Yanagi, another famous, uh, wonderful character, uh, Soyetsu Yanagi, and the unknown craftsman. And his argument is that no one can create beauty as an artist or as a craftsman mm. and his specialty are pots. If they're intentionally trying to create something beautiful, it can't do it. There will always be second rate work because there you're, you're back into the didactic. The person is trying to express beauty by consciously choosing the form to create that. Mm. Whereas the truly beautiful bowl the beautiful chair is simply making what you do for another person mm. and when you do that it can become beautiful if you're really good at what you do if you do it over and over and over again and you winnowed out all that yeah no that doesn't work very well and you get all of that out of your system until yeah they want a chair i'll make you a chair you make them a chair then it has the chance of being beautiful when it's simply mm. that that selfless, that unknown, that non-egotistical, I am going to make a beautiful chair for that person. Yeah. Then the, the self gets involved and uh, yeah. instead it's just, here's a cup of water. Desire a Buddha, right. Buddha would say no, instead of here's the cup of water and what you actually hand to the person is the grail. Mm. That's fascinating. I promised myself, if you remember last time I kept you from your breakfast and I, <laughs> and I realized that we are, probably ending your window of breakfast time. So I want to at least be thoughtful of your time. I ate in advance, but yeah, an hour and 48. <laughs> if you don't edit, this is verging on, on, on levels of cruelty with your re with your listeners. I, yeah, I guess we have different aesthetic theories. I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, I, mine I, seem really self-centered. <laughs> I'm I, long form and yeah. just myself, but yes. If you <laughs> Yeah, I honestly I started this whole endeavor because I wanted to talk to people, bless you, that I want I was just interested in speaking with people who one seemed interested in talking to me and yeah. two <laughs> were really interested in things. I don't know. I don't know if we, we spoke about this last time, but I had this experience of reading a book by this famous New Testament scholar, her name is Elaine Peggles, and yeah. I the book down it was like a personal book about how her studies sort of influenced her life and vice versa and i put the book down i looked at the back i was like damn she's a princeton or she was let me you know professors have emails on websites so let me re let me reach out to her and she was like come on up i'd love to speak with you That's and then awesome. i i just asked myself what would happen if i just kept doing that yeah. and you know there's always like this little this little hurdle of fear maybe every time they're like oh you know sure sure why would Austin's girlfriend's father <laughs> want to speak to me on a Saturday morning? But I've just found every, every time that I push through that, I've, I have benefited and it, you know, Good. at the risk of projecting, I, people continually seem willing to do it. And then you get people like you who are willing to do it a second time ah, uh, and they can't even say that they're, they're ignorant of not, they, they don't know what the process is going to be like. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, I don't blame the people. I, the first I eat time. in advance, so <clears throat> um, nice. 
But no, that, that yeah, it's um, a fascinating question. Uh, the process of creating it and then who on earth would come and listen to this and what, uh, what pleasure would they find in it? It's a pleasure to talk to you, Kevin, because you're, uh, you're smart and fun and, and you listen to what I have to say. And I just want an audience in life. Yeah. Uh, um, so I'm curious. Yeah, sorry. We're, you go. we're the, sorry. We're, we are the critics. We're, we're the, um, we're creating an art by appreciating art. And mm. I think there's, there's place for that. It's, it's simply, it's, I think the soul of, of, of criticism, academic criticism should be, although it often isn't, Sure. is just simply the delight and the play of the ideas that we find in things. Yeah, I don't mind that definition at all, but I think I've been so affected by the, what I imagine you would have put in the category of critics that they shouldn't be, that, that I'm all, I have an aversion even to that word, but I certainly <laughs> do, don't have an aversion or any protest to that definition. I like that. <laughs> um, I could probably do about 15 more minutes if you're okay with that. Uh, sure. If you've got more questions, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm curious. You're obviously in this editing. Pro I'm sorry, in this um, publishing process. Yeah. Are you already on to the next idea? I mean, are you just constantly writing, or is this when you go sort of go to the blog and incubate some ideas on the blog, and then you go you go back to a long form idea? Uh yes and no um i've neglected the blog for some time um i put up ideas and architecture there and uh other stories about trying to get refrigerators were fixed and other things that just come to mind um and uh you know I, I i do have a bunch of i do have a bunch of writing ideas that have been bumping about uh, as they don't pay particularly sure. well sure. at all, I have to be doing other things. So right now I'm spending all of my time trying to get my woodworking uh, business back going. I've neglected it for a year. Hmm. Uh, happily, I just got a call from an interior designer for some doors in a place in the South Loop. And I'm hoping beyond hope that turns into a long-term relationship of making lots of lovely things. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, the writing, um, the writing I'll never get out of my system. It's not something I seem to have much of a choice with. I, I have to be writing uh, to remain sane. Uh, not to say it's therapeutic. I imagine it does have a therapeutic value, but I have um, uh, this strange desire just to keep putting words together, <coughs> to tell stories, to hopefully make people laugh. Perhaps it is didactic in that regard and therefore a lesser art form um, that I do intend to make people smile. We don't have to uh, agree with Joyce. Huh? I said, we don't have to agree with Joyce. <laughs> no, no. Well, but no, he's, he's very right. Uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of other... Uh, um, the... Uh, the the, my blog has a couple of entries into what, I, uh, what I'm calling the 30 Objects book. Mm. It's a, a series of, of essays about objects that have been singularly meaningful in my life, uh, whether they're objects that I've made, whether they're objects that were given to me, whether they're objects that I just stumbled into. One of them is a U-Haul truck. Mm. Uh, 
and uh, the um, the three days that I lived with that truck. Uh, so there, you know, essays, and I think um, I think I do my better writing with the shorter essays. Uh, I've also got ideas. I, I um, uh, this one would be fun. I, nobody nobody would ever read it, but it would be great fun to write. Uh, in 1991, I bought a motorcycle in Slovakia and rode it across Europe. Uh, rode it across Europe on what I called my pilgrim, my pension pilgrimage. Mm. I visited uh, uh, many of the sites and, and parts of Germany and France uh, that uh, Pynchon mentions in the book. Of course, you know his his world is all um, imaginary. Uh, but uh, still visited the rocket grounds at Pinamunda hmm. and other, but the adventures on that trip were a little more, were the real adventures on that trip were less pension and more history. Um, I arrived on the border with Slovenia uh, and Austria on July, the night of July 3rd and spent the night uh, being somewhat concerned that the Austrians had a, um, uh, eight or nine tanks parked in the village where I was staying and, and hundreds of troops running around because uh, it was the next day that um, the Yugoslav civil war started mm. um, and Slovenia, I guess, declared independence and Belgrade said, no, you don't. And Slovenia said, yes, we do. And Belgrade said, no, you don't. Mm. And started shooting at each other. Um, so I rode right along the edge of, rode my bike right along the edge of that past tank traps and Austrian troops. And I rode up to the border and got a look. It was just a normally, normally operating border on July 4th, but uh, that was kind of fun. Yeah. And then through, uh, through Eastern, through East Berlin in the summer of 91, it, none of the buildings had been repaired. And it struck me just how much, of the damage from the Second World War had not been repaired. Mm. Uh, so many buildings still had uh, uh, bullet holes and uh, shell, you know, shrapnel damage to them that uh, the the uh, the communist government had never repaired. I mean, almost as punishment to the Germans. Mm. So it really felt like I was I was riding through post World War II landscape. I'm sure it's all changed now that now after reunification and 30 years of that, they've cleaned the place up. But at the time it felt like a time warp back, um, back 50 years. That's interesting. I teach with a woman who's a German teacher who actually grew up in East Germany. That's the end of that story, but occasionally I'll pick her, <laughs> I'll pick her brain about what that was like. Yeah. It's almost unimaginable. Yeah. Yeah. She Ask often her, says the kit, the students like have no idea. You know, if she says that they're like, oh, that's just a part of Germany. It's the opposite yeah, of the yeah. West. No, no. Oh, ask her if, if, if you have the opportunity, ask her what she thinks of the movie, The Lives of Others. Hmm. Um, I've found that to be a very powerful movie. Uh, it's about a Stasi officer assigned to listen in on uh, an artist couple. Interesting. Because, um, of course, it was uh, everybody was spying on everybody else in East Germany. Um, something like 60% of the population were involved with the Stasi. Mm. Uh, 
telling the government about their neighbors' activities. Uh, so it was very much part of daily life. I've, I found it to be a very powerful movie. I'd be very curious what her, uh, her sense of it was. Yeah, it sounds interesting. But yeah, the, the, the communists that I met in Slovakia in 90 and 91 were marvelously unrepentant. <laughs> one, yeah. one, uh, one told me, uh, uh, you know, Strother, we really need credit. You know, nobody gives us credit. Everybody's down on the communists, but we could have rolled out the tanks in 89 and we didn't. Sure. And I think we should get credit for that. I said, well, yeah, actually, you know, that, that's, that's a fair enough point. I'll give you one point <laughs> toward that on the slate book against about 12 million others of, sure. of uh, being horrifying and destroying other people's lives for 80 some years in, in, mm. uh, in Eastern and Central Europe. But yes, you didn't murder at the very end. You didn't murder more people. So I, I give you that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> fascinating i guess to close out I'm, I'm curious obviously i could ask you a million questions about your bike trip but <clears throat> i thought about this question earlier and, and it and for whatever reason it, i'm still interested in it these people call you from the south loop they want you to make some doors what is that process of like what is that process like of trying to figure out what they need but then also like what you've envisioned yeah it uh it's woodworking empathy. Hmm. And I absolutely strive not to be uh, an ego in the process at all. And the way I like to look at it is I don't have to live with what I make for the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years or however long would I make last. They do. So it's not about any any aspect of the process that pleases me is up to me and of course i i, I choose um the tools that i enjoy i enjoy using and i set up my shop so that it's a pleasurable place but i really try not to lose sight of the fact that i'm making things for them um if i hear myself advising them what i would do for my own home against what they're asking me for I go through a process of asking essentially a very good question, which is, do they know what's in their own best interest? Hmm. Uh, and that, that does, that is an issue with a lot of clients. They'll say, well, I want, um, I want a really warm uh, countertop that I can, you know, sleep on. I want granite. I'll say, well, okay. I see that you want granite, but I, and you want something warm, but granite is not going to give you the effect you're telling me. Hmm. So in that case, I will try to Im impose some, you know, so to speak, expertise to say, if you want a countertop that you can lean on in the wintertime in your bare sleeves and not feel cold, you need wood. Hmm. Uh, that's a warm countertop material to feel. Uh, you don't want granite. You're, you're going to lean on that and, and it's going to suck the heat out of your arm. So hmm. I'll, I'll try to you know, so to speak, educate uh, when a client doesn't know their own desires. And th that happens. We're, nobody can be expert on everything. Um, I will sure. listen to uh, uh, an educated salesman about knowing my, knowing my better interests when I don't. I'll try to tell them 
what I'm in the final effect and then trust their expertise to get me there. Mm. Um, the, uh, and the, the process is very much, yeah, that empathy. I go into the place, I look at it, I notice everything else they've bought, everything else they've done, and then I'll ask them about it. I'll say, well, do you like this chair? And I'll say, oh, God, no. Uh, my brother-in-law gave it to me. We just keep it here because, you know, um, he visits. I'm like, okay, good to know. Because um, if they gave another response, which is, oh, we love this chair. I love how comfortable it is. Yeah. I just fall into it. Okay, okay, good. That means, um, you know, um, uh, you don't mind a, a chair that's low to the ground. It's not a pain in the ass to get out of. So you try to learn the taste, learn, learn the real taste, learn the real attraction um, and the real budget as well. Uh, the vast majority of us have, as they say, champagne tastes on a beer budget. <laughs> um, and you, then you try to educate them with, well, this is what I can do for you with, this, with the budget that you've given. Uh, and that always goes south because everybody mm. makes makes it south but in a good way in the sense that they always make this oh we don't need that we can we cannot do this and then a year two three years later i'll get the call of why didn't we make it with this feature and what i could say as well you didn't want to spend the money on that feature but sure. you can't do that you just say oh i'm sorry it's that way i'm sorry it's giving you trouble um and you figure out those and and then you make a proposal and uh I think I, I lose a fair amount of job by being too honest up front. The fine art of the salesman, which is to sell, uh, the fine art of the manipulative salesman is to tell the person what they need to hear to make the sale. And that I, I don't enjoy doing. So hmm. uh, I like to keep long-term relationships as much as possible with clients to say, and not that I told you so, uh, but a sense of, uh, look, if you make this choice with this and you do it this way, these are the things that are going to happen a year, five years, 10 years down the line. Uh, so maybe you don't want to order that table from me because you've still got teenage kids and sure. going to mess up that French polish. Let's do something rustic. <laughs> so when they do this or that, it adds to it. It adds to it. So, yeah, it's a, it's about building a relationship, understanding the customer trying to get them what they really need and want and what will make them happy, what will give them pleasure. Hmm. And as the things I do are useful, there's a whole added layer that I don't really talk to with them about the durability. Um, you know, if they're gonna spend big money, I've got to make it last. So there's a whole lot of behind the scenes underneath where they don't understand what mortise and tenons are, um, but I put those in instead of biscuits. Uh, so that it doesn't fall apart in, in two years. And when they call my number, they get a dial what <laughs> number out of service. Yeah. Which I think happens a little bit too much in the trades. Mm. Uh, and uh, then there, there, there are many layers to it. There's the, the interior decorator who will likely be my client. So it's making this interior decorator look good. Um, getting them what they need to make their client happy, uh, figuring it out a way in which I still can put bread on the table. Because uh, this is America. Everybody wants it for the cheapest amount possible. There are very, very few people who say the budget doesn't matter. Hmm. 
That's fascinating. Those are, I'm going to put all those things on, on the long list of things I've never thought about. <laughs> and you don't need to. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. Because it's, I'm sure I interact with people's crafts all the time and I'm not thinking about it. It'd be interesting to see if I pay any, any small degree of attention more. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 similar things go through every craftsperson's head about how to, you know, how to make the sale, how to create the object, how to um, create the relationship, how to make everybody happy. Mm. And everybody has a different alchemy in their head. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, sometimes it's, I can't believe what that guy did. Yeah. That's fascinating. Huh. Well, I'm very, very thankful for your time. Uh, you've been extremely generous and even, sure, more, my so, pleasure. even more so knowing that it's, it's, it's the second time. So you knew what you were getting yourself into. So I can't feel that bad. <laughs> yeah, I can afford I can afford two hours. That's no problem. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I will get off to breakfast and other things. <laughs> yeah, go do your thing. Well, thank you again. Um, and I <laughs> will, I think like last time, I'll send you an email when, when I'm able to put this up. Yeah, thanks. I'll, cool. I'll pass, pass it around. <laughs>